Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, it's Hanukkah. There's uh, lots to discuss, but um, actually, before we get to Hanukkah, I just want to start with, with, with something else, um, which is just a, a, uh, a, a personal kind of um, take on, on, on where we were at, at in the Parsha, because um, you see, right now you have a, a transition going on. Uh, in terms of the life of Yaakov. Yaakov is, is very fascinating for, you know, zillions of reasons, but, but one thing that's especially fascinating about Yaakov is he's the most multifaceted personality in the Torah. And I'll tell you what I mean by multifaceted. You see him as a, you see him as a son, you see him as a husband, you see him as a son-in-law, you see him as an employee, and you see him as a father, and you see him as a brother. You see him from all of these different dimensions, and this is very unusual. Normally speaking, you see someone as a father, and then maybe as a son, or as a husband, or as a wife, but you don't see all of these different, and you also see Yaakov as a grandfather as well, so, and, and you also see him as leader of the Jewish people. So it's, it's really very, very interesting. Now, what, we've, what we're now transitioning to is a new phase in Parsha's Vayeshev, a, a new chapter in terms of our understanding of, of uh, Yaakov, which is him really as a father relating to his children. I mean, in the, previous cha- in the previous Parsha, we have him with kids, but you don't really see him fathering the kids. Now you're seeing him actually as a father with the kids in terms of managing sort of the dispute between Yosef and the other brothers. So now this is like a whole new take on, on Yaakov. Um, and, and it's a transition from what we've been seeing uh, from him in previous Parshas. And the reason why I'm just sort of like um, calling this out right now is because there is a very interesting challenge in terms of living as a Torah Jew, which is that, you know, you have all of your different um, different relationships that you have to manage, as, as we were talking about with Yaakov. But one of the most challenging ones is passing on Judaism to your children. Like, how do you do that? How do you do that exactly? And and so Yaakov is now engaged in this, in this um, particular field right now. And so, just on a personal note now, uh, what, what, what I found in, in, in my life, and this came as sort of a surprise to me, so I'm, I'm telling you guys so that it shouldn't be a surprise to you, <laughs> just in case uh, you haven't thought of this already, which is that growing up, I didn't grow up uh, in a Torah-observant family. In a, I grew up in a very strongly Jewish family, and we had lots of Jewish stuff going on, but it wasn't you know, Shabbos and Kashrus, this, this type of stuff, wasn't, wasn't really part of the structure. So when I took these things on in my early 20s and everything like this, I, and, you know, still to this day, with God's help, with, you know, enthusiasm and strength and focus, my, my, my thought was that, you know, as I, God willing, have a family or build a family or whatever it is, it automatically translates to the next generation because your enthusiasm just necessarily just automatically translates to the next generation. So what, what I found, though, is that that's not necessarily the case. 
What I found is that that you know someone who comes to observance later in life, we'll, we'll call them bali chuva, right? Which I guess the translation would be masters of return. That's sort of like the the official label for people like that. And then you, but then you're raising children who aren't bali chuva. You're ra- raising children who, you know, in the vernacular, are FFBs, are from from birth. So they're they're growing up with all of these ideas as just it's just normal this is just normal as the air that I breathe. So just to kind of give you an example so so that we're communicating. Imagine someone grows up in the king's palace, right? They're a prince or a princess or something like this. And it's sort of like of course they drink from crystal goblets. Of course they eat off golden plates. That's like normal. Doesn't the whole world drink from crystal goblets and eat from golden plates? Right? That like there's no they don't it's not, in, what I'm trying to express is, it's not a deficiency on their part that they don't necessarily appreciate it when it's all that they've known from their entire life and it's all that they know. So of course it's normal, and they don't actually even have the expanded consciousness, especially as they're children and they're growing up, to understand that there is anything else, or, or why this is necessarily better than anything else, because experientially, they're very sheltered at this point. So, so I've sent my kids to a, a, you know, there are lots of great Jewish schools, but here in Los Angeles to, a, I think, a, a particularly good one. I mean, obviously I'm biased because we're sending them there. But I, I've seen, like, for instance, at a certain point I walked into the kitchen and my, my 10-year-old daughter was, like, reading Rashi's in, in, in Hebrew and, like, analyzing Rashi's. And I was blown away. I mean, it was a little girl and she's, like, you know, like... Like doing like like serious serious stuff, and they they learn a lot. They, 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 this school Yavna, it's called it's, They learn a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Okay. So then, what's the problem? Problem is then they get to high school, <laughs> and at a certain point, you you kind of know the basics, right? You can't keep on learning the basics over and over again. And these schools aren't going to be teaching them like Hasidus or Kabbalah or something like this at this age. So then, then comes this, this point where you think you know. And this is one of the most this is one of the most dangerous things in life and one of the most dangerous things in terms of our relationship with God and this world even is when we get to that point where we think that we know. Because, like we always say, like, when Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge, death came into the world. When you are in a place, in a relationship, whether it's with God, with another person, with the world, with with your own life, whatever it is, where you think you quote-unquote know, that introduces an element of death into that relationship. Because there can't be any more growth. Once you know, because I know, I know, what are you going to tell? I already know. I already know. There, there's death in that. There's, there's death in that. So, so what happens is, the assignments then, at a certain point, because while they may be new assignments, they're not breakthroughs in terms of like conceptual breakthroughs. So it's just kind of more of the same. Okay. So now, the beloved principal of my daughter's uh, yeshiva high school is, is leaving. Uh, 
you know, he's getting ready to move on to other things and he'll be missed. And a new principal is coming in. A new head of school is coming in. And my daughter had, and with some other girls, had a meeting with, with him this, this past week. And this is kind of the point that I'm building to, because this is, uh, this is for all of us. And he introduced some new ideas that he wants to say over to the kids. And I want to tell you one of the ideas, because I think that it's, I think it's a great idea. But um, it also will just help us to understand ourselves a little bit better, I think, I hope. You see, I'll, I'll use my imagery, okay? Imagine you have a cup. And let's say it's an empty cup. And now imagine you have a big pitcher of water. And you fill the cup to the top, right? So now the cup is full. But now imagine you keep on pouring the pitcher into the cup. The cup doesn't get any more water. What happens is, is that all that extra water just spills out on the table and makes a mess. See, a person, if they learn a certain amount, they hit a certain wall, so to speak. And the only way in, for them to take, be able to take more water is to expand their vessel. This is the point. This is the point I'm making. So what was the teacher's advice that he says he wants to introduce something new into the school? He said, I want the girls, at, I don't even know which grade, maybe it's all grades, that I want them to go out and I want them to start teaching Torah. I want them to start teaching Torah in the public schools, and I want them teaching. Now, this to me, I think, is a brilliant, fantastic idea. Because what it does is, it expands your vessel. Because now you have to integrate all of the knowledge that you had up until now in a brand new way. And now you're not just dealing in the same paradigm anymore, where it's just sort of the same pitcher of water pouring into the same cup of water, and there's no more room in the cup for new knowledge to get in, because you've decided you already know everything. So a person has to do things in life to expand their vessels. And teaching, if you're into learning Torah, teaching is one of those great, great things that you can do. And, and today we've got, such a, um, we've got such a crisis, such a plague of ignorance, especially among the Jewish people, that if, as they say, if you know just Olive Bay's, you can teach someone Aleph, because you know, you, you know a tiny bit more than them. So, okay, so already you have something to teach. Okay, so, so now let's just use this as a transition into Hanukkah, because it's very interesting, the two different shitas, two famous different approaches on how to light the Hanukkah candles. We go by Beis Hillel, and we kind of just think it's obvious. Of course, you light one day, then you light two the second day, and three the third day. Of course, like that's obvious, right? Well, it wasn't obvious to Be Shammai. <laughs> Be Shammai, and we say that the halacha is according to Be Shammai in the next world, by the way. You should know. So, according to Be Shammai, first day you light eight candles, second day you light seven candles, third day 
you know, and you go down and down until the eighth day where you have one candle. So I had a moment last night, which was special, because last night was the first day of Hanukkah. We were sitting with just the one light, and I said, you know, according to Beis Shammai, this is what the eighth night of Hanukkah looks like, you know, with that one light. So the reason why Hillel wins the day, which is the increasing uh, one extra candle each day, and by the way, without going through the whole thing, the Ma'or V'Shemesh says, you know what it means that every single person in the house is lighting their own menorah and increasing each day? That stands for a person doing tshuva on their tshuva. See, normally speaking, normally speaking, this is a, this is a more advanced concept as you sort of want to grow and further refine yourself. But, but you see, just, just so you should hear the idea if you don't know it already, there's a concept of tshuva. Tshuva, unfortunately, very unfortunately, is, is, is often re- re- translated as repentance, which is a horrible, alienating term. It means, in, in, in Hebrew, it actually means return. Who doesn't want to return? Who wants to repent? No one wants to repent. Who wants to return? Everyone wants to return. So, so tshuva actually means return. Um, so, so there's, but, but it also means kind of fixing up whatever past mistakes you've had. But then a person gets to an even higher level where they can look back on their previous tshuva, their previous fixing, and they go, ah, oh, I can actually do tshuva on my tshuva. I can actually even fix up what I thought was my fixing up. So, so the mayor of Ashevish says that this is the idea of like, uh, Mahadran min mahadran, you know the, the 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 sort of like the the best 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 sort of like expression of everyone individually lighting and increasing the lights. Okay, but let's get back to Beishama. What is that 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 approach of making more light into the world? That 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 seems fairly clear. But what is the Torah approach? And we say like the halacha in the next world is like Beishama. What is this idea of decreasing every night? Where does he where does he get that idea? So, so it's based on the Gemara explains it's based on the the offerings that we bring f- for Sukkot that we bring for the seventy nations and we bring um, for and remember Sukkot is the the last holiday uh, that we've had on the calendar and so we bring seventy offerings over the course of the uh, of the seven days for all the nations of the world and we start with a certain number the first day. And then we decrease the second day, and then we decrease the third day, and decrease until there's just one offering on the last day. So, so that's where Beis Shammai gets the the order the ordering of decreasing in light. And so I was thinking, well, wait a second. Maybe you can reconcile these two things. By the way, what, one thing that's very beautiful is in in Beis Shammai's approach, you end with the light of oneness. Right? Because there's just one light. In other words, you what are you lighting up? What are you what are you what are you putting this just great beacon light on? The fact that God is one. The fact that God controls the entire thing. So you just it just sort of like all gets distilled down to oneness. But the idea is also the idea of lessening the power of the outside forces. So in other words, and that's why we're decreasing, because the other nations of the world stand for, on some level, outside forces. And so we're decreasing, 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 decreasing. 
So in this way, you can now put these two thoughts together and you can say, okay, well, wait a second. It seems very intuitive, maybe even spiritually obvious, that we want to increase in light. And yet, Beishamai is, what's greater than Beishamai? And he's decreasing. So how can those two thoughts go together? But you can reconcile them like this. That by decreasing the darkness every day, you are in fact increasing the light. You see? So, so even Beishamai actually, and, 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 and Beishamai's thing is, it all ends in oneness. Right? So, the oneness of God, the revelation of the oneness of God. Okay. So good. So, plus, plus it yeah. makes more sense on the oil basis. Every day you would have a little less oil. Right. Right. Yeah. That's and that's that's another level to it, which is that on the first day of Hanukkah, you had eight days worth of oil in it. Yeah. Right. And so each each one less. Right. So um, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says something very interesting, also, which is that you know everyone asks the same question, which is. How could, how could it be that Hanukkah is celebrated for eight days when really we had enough oil for one day? So that means that there were only seven miraculous days, not eight miraculous days. So we should only light the menorah symbolizing this great miracle for seven days. Or Hanukkah should only be seven days. So my favorite answer, by the way, but just before we get to that, so the, the, the 20, the the Kis, the Hanukkah is on the 25th day of Kislev. So that means on the 25th day of Kislev, which is the first day, we actually had oil for that day. So the miracle starts the next day. The miracle starts, says the Lubavitcher Rebbe, on the 26th day of Kislev. And of course, 26 is the Gematria of Hashem's holiest name, Yudke Vavke. So in other words, you see the miracles kicking in on the 26th, right? Which is Yudke Vavke. Very, very interesting, you know? Um, you know, I, so, so yeah, now, now let's, let's go further, let's go further, because we have to understand what, what Hanukkah is, is all about, really. Hanukkah, it's like, is a very, very core, central understanding of Judaism, by the way, you should know that there were many, 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 many miracles, many miracles uh, in the times of the Beis HaMikdash. And they had a whole sefer. They, they refer to it in the, um, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the Gomorrah, this whole scroll, like, you know, that had like a whole chronology of all the holidays. Only two holidays were kept by the sages for future times, and that was Hanukkah and Purim. But there were many, many, many miracles. So, in other words, if they picked Hanukkah and they picked Purim, you have to understand that these are Judaism-defining concepts that the sages wanted to make sure that were perpetuated, that we understood. Okay. So what is that Judaism-defining concept of, of Hanukkah? So now let's get to that. And you see it very beautifully presented by the Ari, who points out... That if you look at the bracha, the, the first bracha that we say on the menorah, bracha ta Hashem alokinu melcholam asher kedushanu mitzosev etzivanu lahadlik ner Hanukkah. Okay, so this is the nusach. This is the ordering of the prayer without the word shell. Sometimes they say lahadlik ner 
Shel Chanukah. Nusach Ashkenaz does that. But, you know, once you hear this Torah, you, it's hard to say Shel after you, you hear this. So, <laughs> I, I always say to my family before we light, no Shel! Okay, so that we can kind of really capture this concept, which is, if you take these last three words, without the Shel, Lahadlik Ner Chanukah, right, and you take the first three letters and rearrange them, so Nun for Ner, uh, Ches for Chanukah, and Lamed for Lahadlik, right, so it would be Nun, Ches, Lamed, that spells Nacha, which means river. So this is from the arena. So the Ari, like, what are you talking about? We're talking about menorah, and we're talking about a miracle of Hanukkah and finding this oil. That, what are you talking about rivers for? What is this river business? But the, the river is like the whole idea. Like the whole idea is this river. Okay, so now we're not talking about a river of water, although it is interesting that we're lighting fire and we're talking about a river, right? Water and fire. Because what is Shemayim? Is water and fire, right? So, together. Anyway. This river is a divine flow. So it's, it's a divine energy that flows through the generations. And if you look at the account in the Gomorrah about Hanukkah, it's very short, it's in Mesech to Shabbos. If you look at it, it says there's one very curious thing that's like a lot of people don't talk about so much, which is, here, here's what I think people think the story is. They, they won the war, and then they cleaned up the temple, and then we didn't have any oil that was kosher. Then we looked and looked and looked and looked, and we found one last jar that still had the seal of the claim guddle on it. We, we put it in the menorah. It was really only enough for one day, and it lasted... Eight days, we said, this is a great miracle, and we declared the holiday of Hanukkah. That's right up, up until the end that was right. <laughs> what, what's, the, what's the new twist on it? And this is in the Gomorrah. I'm just telling you straight Gomorrah. Is that it burned, it was only enough for one day, it burned for eight days, and then one year later, we declared the holiday of Hanukkah. Not after the miracle was made. One, one year later, the holiday was instituted. Because one year later, the sages were like, it was the time of the miracle again, and they were all like, do you feel it? It's still here. The miracle is back. The energy of the miracle is back. Oh, that means that miracle is forever. And then they instituted Hanukkah forever. That's the flow. That's the flow of this energy through time. You see, when a chacham, when a sage sits, even today, in, let's say, in Me'asharim, right? It's lots of places, but let's just say Me'asharim. In Yerushalayim, and he's in front of a Shulchan Aruch, and there's a new question in technology today, like, what do you do with a, an iPhone under these, search, these situations? Or what do you do in terms of this medical ethics case with this type of situation? And he's completely immersed in Kedusha, and he's completely immersed in Torah, and he's got to say what the halacha is, what our understanding of, of our, how we're supposed to act under these circumstances is. 
And then he says, okay, this is what we do. That's the same flow. That's the same nachal. That's the same light that's going through all of the generations until this day. That's, that's it. That, that, and and it, 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 it never stops. It never stops. When we talk about the voice from Mount Sinai has never stopped, that's the flow. That's what we're talking about. Now let me put it another way, okay? So I heard Reb Shlomo say this one time, that he, he, he was at Columbia University, and, and uh, he heard this, uh, this teacher there saying stuff that was very disrespectful to, I think he singled out Rabbi Akiva. And he saw Reb Shlomo, you know, like, was, you know, a yeshiva monk sitting in the, in, in the crowd listening, and he, this professor, this academic, got sort of uncomfortable because he's kind of looking at this person who's like, not just teaching it or talking about it, but who's obviously living it, right? And so he says to him, why don't you, do, do you want to, what, what, what do you say to this? And Rip Shlomo got up there and he yelled at him. He yelled at him and how dare you, how dare, what do you know about Rabbi Akiva? You know, and was yelling at him. And then when he said this over, he said, he said, I, w- it, he said, I would have done it differently today. So I asked him, I said, what would you have done differently? He said, I would have gone up to him beforehand and whispered into his ear and said, sorry, brother, but I'm going to have to knock you off. (laughs) (laughs) He said, and then I would have done it. And, you know, if you know anything about Reb Shlomo, that's just such such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then here's what he said. This is why I'm telling you this story. Here's, here's what he said to the people there. He said, the question is, and to me, I love this. This is pure Rip Shlomo because what he's summing up in this one phrase is a mountain of learning. Okay? He, he turned to the people there and he said, the question is, do you believe that God is in an ongoing conversation with his creation? Do you believe that God is in an ongoing conversation with the world. See, because that's the flow. That's the flow. And and this is... What, what I love about that is... And this is just me talking right now. What I love about that, the, 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 the way he phrased that, is that it seems so intuitive that God is in an ongoing conversation, right? Every time you're like driving someplace and you, you find a parking space like, you know, where the green light is still flashing, like you don't have to put money in the meter, right? It's sort of like, oh, thank you, God. Or you find a parking spot like right in front of the place that you're going to. Unbelievable. I mean, we experience it in so many different ways in our lives that God is in this ongoing conversation with us, with the whole world. We, we experience it. We feel it, you know? You know, one of the, for me, one of the greatest Jewish jokes I know is, is because it's so deep and it's on this point, is a guy is driving and he's, it's, he's late for a meeting and it's like a big meeting and it's like, you know, I don't know if you've ever tried to 
park in Manhattan, but it can take you a half an hour. I mean, it's, it's like a big deal to, to find a parking space. So he's really trying to find something, and he starts talking to God and saying, God, if you, if you give me this parking space, I, I, and I'm on time for this meeting, I'll, I'm going to start keeping Shabbos. I'll start, and then a space opens up right in front of me. He goes, he goes never mind, I just found one. <laughs> See, there is a lot of life in that joke. There is a lot of life in that joke. That's, that, I'm telling you, that's a very deep joke. That's a very, very, very deep joke. Because God is in an ongoing conversation with his creation, with this world. But then, we still have to understand that that's the case. You know what I mean? Because, here's the, here's the point. Because God preserves the dynamics of free choice every single moment of our lives. You see, if I were to ask you in the five books, what's the greatest miracle of the five books? I think most people would probably say the splitting of the Red Sea, right? And yet, if you look at the account right in the Chumash, in the splitting of the Red Sea, it says, and a wind blew that entire night and separated the waters, right? So even there, God gave, it was clearly from God, clearly from God. Right? He put a cloud to stop the you know, oncoming Egyptian army. You know, so I mean, there were so many dynamics, if you look, where you see it was completely miraculous. And yet, God did it in such a way where people could go, oh no, it just happens to be, it's very windy in that direction. Even with the greatest miracle, maybe of all time, God presented it in a way where our free choice can always be preserved. Okay. So now, understanding, understanding this flow, understanding this, this flow, the Parshas of Yosef um, are always happening during Hanukkah, every year. So we have to understand, how does this whole Nachal connect with Yosef and under our understanding of what, what the world that we live in, okay? Now, I noticed something that, that I got excited about, which is that the very first dream that Yosef presents to his brothers that he's had, and this is, you know, just, just to tell you, just before we go into it, just on an atmospheric level, you know what I mean? Just thematically, this, I, I love this, which is that these are the darkest days of the year, meaning the nights are the longest. And now, all of a sudden, what are we talking about in the Torah? Dreams, right? And, you know, Kabbalistically, every month has a different fixing. The fixing for Kislev, which is Hanukkah, which are these darkest days, the fixing is the aspect of sleep. You know? By the way, on the first page of the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, the very, very first page, we're told that when we wake up in the morning, we have to get out of bed like a lion. Yeah. You know, I, I, Rabbi Green told me one time that he has a rule with himself. No conversations with myself in bed in the morning. <laughs> if you want to be able to get out of bed like a lion, right? You can't wake up and go, okay, now let's sort of like review my life. <laughs> I'll be lying all day. <laughs> right, like a, like a lion, L-I-O-N, and not L-Y-I-N apostrophe, right? <laughs> so... So that's um, 
You know, and I'll tell you something, the, the P.S. Cessna Rebbe, the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto, was, uh, he had a big school. And, you know, he would counsel his children. Uh, and I thought this is, I mean, this is like where you just see the beauty of a Rebbe Talmud, you know, teacher-student relationship. He would advise his students who had trouble getting out of bed in the morning that what they should do is they should lie in bed with one leg on the bed when they go to sleep and one leg on a chair, right? And that way it will be easier for you to get out of bed in the morning because you just have to take your leg off the chair and put it on the ground. Hmm. Now, whether you do it or not, do you feel the love in that advice? Do you feel how much the Rebbe loves the student that he's come up with like this this idea, this piece of advice, which is so practical, you gotta, you just gotta, you, you gotta, like, you, you wanna run to the safer and hug it when you hear something like that, you know? Okay. So, so the nights are long, and we're talking about dreams, and Yosef tells his first dream. And his, his first dream is, he says to his brothers, Behold, we were binding sheaves in the middle of the field. When, behold, my sheaf arose and also remained standing. Then, behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Okay, this is, by the way, chapter 37, verse, <coughs> verse 6. Okay, so the Ramban says something, like, very wonderful, which is that, you know, why is he dreaming about wheat? Like, he could be anything. Like, he's going to have another dream in a, in, in a few more lines, and he's going to be a star. Right? So why, why is he starting off with wheat? And the brothers are bowing down. Their wheat is bowing down to his wheat. So the Ramban says something just so, like when you hear this, you go, oh, of course, wow, of course, of course. When, when do the brothers actually physically bow? They do. They will physically bow down to Yosef, just like in the stream. They will do it. He has prophecy in the stream. By the way, the Gomorrah says this wasn't prophecy, but it's that dreams have an aspect of prophecy, and the highest level of a dream has an element of prophetic content in it, and that was Yosef's dream. In other words, this is the highest level of dreams that aren't prophecy. And they say that these type of dreams, the, the, the level of spirituality of the dreams of Yosef, we don't really have so much today. This is not, because this was really basically just below prophecy. Also, you should know something else if you're into understanding your dreams and things like that. By the way, if you want to have a whole course in dream interpretation, Torah symbolism of dream interpretation, it's in Gemara Brachas, approximately page 57. Look around there, and you'll see there's pages on dreams and how to interpret dreams. And the bottom line of interpreting dreams, just so you know, is that it goes according to the interpretation. So that's why you should always know. If anyone ever tells you a dream that they have, you always should say, it's a good dream. Very important that you say that. And that, and it's very important that you don't say, oh, well, you know, to, to, to give a bad interpretation to it. God forbid. Don't, don't do that. Because then you're actually kind of messing with their mazel a little bit. So you, you give it a positive interpretation, or you, you don't even have to give it an interpretation. You just say it's a good dream. Right? And if you have a dream that, like, freaks you out, the um, advice is to give tzedakah, right? 
Some people even fast, but that's not really done so much anymore. So you give tzedakah, and, and, and that's, that's, that's a good thing. Um, they also say that if, if you dream about something that you were thinking about a lot during the day, that that dream is not significant, even if it's a troubling dream, because it's just a manifestation of your anxiety, which is very interesting, because that's, Freud was essentially talking about that, that type of stuff, you know? So this is thousands of years before then. So also, interestingly, if you eat something like really spicy, like if you have like, like a really upset stomach, and then you have like crazy dreams, this, these are, can also be dismissed as not important. Okay? But here's something else which is very helpful. Among dreams that are considered meaningful, and if you have the same dream in a re- reoccurring way, that's definitely considered significant. If you have a dream where there's that, that, that you really feel is meaningful, you should understand, because we learned it out from Yosef, that every dream, even the truest dream, has an element of nonsense in it. Okay? So if you want to interpret your own dream, like let's say you have a dream and, you, and there's like some aspect of the dream that you're uncomfortable with, you can say, the Gemara says there's an element of nonsense in every dream. That was the element of nonsense. Do you hear? This is a tool. This is a tool for giving a positive interpretation. Okay. So, so let's get back to the Ramban. What, the, the brothers are going to bow down to Yosef in reality in, 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 a, in, a, in a few more uh, chapters. Why? Because it's all about wheat. Because they've come for wheat. So, so it makes sense that Yosef is represented as wheat and the other brothers who want the wheat are bowing down to his wheat because he's the one who has all the wheat. So that's very interesting, just the exactness of the dream, right? But I want to I key in on, on something that sort of like excited me, which is that if, if, if I were to ask you, what was the dream now? I think maybe probably what you would say back to me is that Yosef dreamed that he was wheat, and then the other brothers were wheat, and they bowed down to his wheat. That's, I think, probably what you would say back to me. But let's hear it again, because it, it's, it, there's a critical detail that I left out there. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the middle of the field, when, behold, my sheave arose, and also remained standing. And then, behold, your, your sheaves bowed down to, to my sheave. See, I think that that, to me, is, is, the, is the essential aspect of it is that Yosef rose up, but Yosef remained standing. He remained at Sadak under the most negative, harshest situations, being tormented, essentially, by, by Potiphar's wife, by uh, being in a prison in Egypt. I mean, Egypt was the lowest place, and this was a prison within Egypt, and he remained at Sadak. So it's not just that he rose up. That, that was, on some aspect, just the gift that was given to him, that he, that his greatness, his natural greatness. But nat- just naturally doing something doesn't get you there. You, you have to work. And, and Yosef didn't just rise up. He rose up, and he remained standing, even as he was tested. Hugely, from every aspect. I, I heard someone say that when he was in Potiphar's house, 
I already compared to two things by two different rabbis in terms of the level of temptation that he was subjected to. One was that it was like he was being torn at by a hundred lions. All right? In terms of what he was experiencing. Just so you understand the greatness of Yosef. Another was, imagine you're chewing something, another rabbi said to me at one point, imagine you're chewing something absolutely delicious and you can't swallow. Right? Like your taste buds are freaking out in your mouth, you know? They're like popping off like 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 fireworks in your mouth, but you can't like do anything with that. So these are just two very sort of visceral kind of like presentations just to try to get us to understand what 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 Yosef was experiencing. So the idea was that he remains standing. And you see, this is what it means to be a tzaddik. And this is what it means to understand the dynamic flow of the world. Because I want to connect these two thoughts now. You see, there are two types of tzaddikim in Torah. One type of tzaddik is someone who never makes a mistake. But if you look at Shlomo Amelech, how he defines what a tzaddik is, he says a tzaddik is someone who falls down seven times and gets back up. So his understanding of what a tzaddik is, is someone who constantly rededicates themselves and never gives up. Right? And now if you look at, and Reb Shlomo is very, very big on this, he used to talk about this all of the time, if you talk about the two models of Mashiach, because we have Mashiach bin David and Mashiach bin Yosef, right? From the two brothers, from Yosef and from Yehuda. Who would you think is the ultimate Mashiach of the world? The one who never made a mistake or the one who made a mistake and got it back together? So if you ask me, I would say probably the one who never made a mistake. But it's not true. Mashiach ben David is from the line of Yehuda. And Yehuda is the one who falls and gets back up. And this, to me, is a... You can derive endless amounts of strength from this. I heard Reb Shlomo say one time in the name of Rebbe Nachman of Breslau. Listen to this. He said, Rebbe Nachman said, he said, I am the tzaddik of all the worlds, and I hold the keys to heaven and earth in my hand. And he said, if I make a mistake, I'm still the tzaddik of all the worlds, and I hold the keys to heaven and earth in my hand. This is, that's big. That's really big. And I heard Yehuda, Solomon, say that, that Reb Shlomo would say to the kids on the Moshav all the time, if you fall down, meaning if you somehow like have a setback in your life, whatever it is, if you fall down, okay, so sit on the ground for a couple of moments, but then you got to get right back up. So, so Yehuda, the idea of Yehuda being Mashiach, you, you see something very deep, or the Messianic line. From the Megali Amukos, 
he says if you look at the name Yehuda, Yehuda actually has five letters in it. Four of the letters spell Yudke Vavke, the name of Hashem. And then you have one extra letter, Dalit. And he says that the Dalit stands for David HaMelech. So here you see in Yehuda's name the whole messianic line, right? See Hashem going into the soul of, so to speak, you know, or using, elevating David HaMelech, right? And then I thought of another level within, and I don't know if the Megali Amukos says this or not, but Kabbalistically speaking, we have four worlds, which is not four separate planets, but it's one world, but these are four stratifications of spirituality, meaning that, you know, like, uh, like sometimes we talk about it in terms of water, like you've got ice, water, water vapor, right? It's all H2O, but you see it becomes more and more expansive, right? So that's what it is when we talk about the four worlds. This bottom world, the fourth world, is we call Olamasiya, the world of action, right? That's why Torah is so mitzvah-oriented. It's so action-oriented, because this is the world to do things. So, so isn't it interesting that Yehuda, which represents the Messianic line, has Hashem's name and the, and the letter Dalit. Dalit is four. So in other words, the fourth world down, that's this dimension. And it's like Hashem, what is the concept of Mashiach? That Hashem will be revealed in this, in this dimension as well, right? There will be total clarity in this fourth, this fourth world, right? This, this most material world will we'll light up with the revelation of God's oneness. Dave, uh, kind of remind me what you said about Rav Shlomo Karlbach, you know, how he with the suitcases with the Sephirim and it landed and everything else. And he's like, this is the craziest world I've been to, you know. Yeah. So, so it's kind of that different level, you know. Yeah, yeah. So so we have the whole concept of, of flow, of divine flow. So let's just understand how that how that connects with this. You see, a lot of people think that we inhabit a dead planet. That we're all these like material beings and we're on this giant lump of rock in the middle of the sky. How it works? Why we don't fly off? Who knows? That's for scientists. All I know is I'm alive and, uh, you know, I'm on this giant rock. And it's sort of like, it's, it's, it's a view of life that basically this is what it is. And it's essentially stagnant. I mean... Every day I'm a day older, but other than that, it's pretty much the same. And so, when you understand this concept of divine flow, of Nachal, of, of Hanukkah, of revelation, you understand that actually we're in a world of dynamic change. And the, 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 the best proof that I can give, I keep on going back to this because I can't think of any other proof that's greater than this, is that Donald Trump is president of the United States. And I'm not making a political statement for or against right now. I'm just saying, how could that be? <laughs> how, really? I mean, even if you love him, you can't be less surprised than if you hate him. It is mind-meltingly, <laughs> like, fantastical, meaning as in the supernatural, that he is president of the United States. 
And, and, you know, based on everything that we've seen so far, there's going to be real change, it seems like. Not, not, not like we're going to... Not like when Sarah Palin was making fun of Obama, saying, how, how do you like your Hopi changey now, right? Not, not, I don't think we're going to see the Hopi changey kind of change now. Again, I'm not talking politics. I'm just talking about, like, as we say, La Misa, like actually giant shifts in U.S. policy. Giant, giant shifts in, in sort of the, the whole philosophy and approach to government. I, I mean, that's my sense, is just based on what I've read, is that you're actually going to see like dramatic change of some sort. Which, on some level, is terrifying, and on another level, very exciting. You know, if it works, if it works, it's very exciting. Um, but this is the case in all of our lives as well. And we have to understand that we're in a dynamic environment. We're in a dynamic environment where change can be around the corner. It can be one block away. It can be one second away. And we have to live our lives understanding that. Because the definition of exile is thinking. This is from Rebele Bele Eger. The definition of exile is thinking that because today was like yesterday, because today was like yesterday, tomorrow is going to be the same as today. But that's not the world, way the world works. As Reb Shlomo again summed up a giant thought so simply, the world does not work in a one plus one equals two way. It just doesn't work that way. There's just constant X factors going on. Constant X factors. So this is Hanukkah. This is the divine flow. This is the idea that miracles are actually built into the world. Now what did we say, and we'll just finish on this, the 25th day of Kislev is Hanukkah. The 20, you can count it. Count it. Breshis. Open up the Torah from the first word. Breshis is number one. Bara is number two. Count till you get to 25. And what's the 25th word of the Torah? Or, which means light. You see that everything is so precise, everything is so exact, that this, that this light, this miraculous aspect of creation was built into creation from the very outset. So, you know, there's a halakha that says that a person, a poor person, actually has to sell the shirt off his back in order to afford Hanukkah candles. So I thought to myself, when I first learned that, I thought that was so strange. But do you know what the, do you know what the reason why we, do you, do you know the reason why we light Hanukkah candles? It's to publicize the miracle. It's called Persume Nisa. So that everyone should see that a miracle took place. And I thought to myself, oh, maybe if someone saw a poor man walking without a shirt during Hanukkah, that's, that's like, he's like this menorah. You know what I mean? So that's also a level of pursuing Nisa. So anyway, this world is a miracle. God is a miracle. Your lives are miracles. The fact that we're learning together is a miracle. And just be a miracle in the context of miracles. Okay. What follows is a long conversation with someone searching for the truth. Uh, comparing Yom Kippur to Hanukkah, 
Uh, we, in both cases, I guess, is our nation winning against uh, another nation. Right. And, but in Purim, the focus is on happiness, joy. And then in Hanukkah, the focus is on miracles and light. But in both incidents, this, like, the same thing happened. We had a fight with another nation, or they wanted to destroy us, and then we won. What are the sages trying to get across with focusing on joy in, in one, and then focusing on light and miracles in another? Okay, so I would say that the, um, again, you're asking big questions here because there are books written on this subject, okay, comparing Hanukkah and Purim. This is like a whole field of Torah literature, just to compare these two holidays, okay? But I'll just give you my answer, which I'm sure has been covered in many books, but I'm just going to say, which is that Purim is really, they're both, they're talking about two different aspects of miracles, Okay? Purim is all about hidden miracles, right? Hanukkah is all about revealed miracles. See, like the Bnei Yisachar gives an example of what is the miracle of Purim. And he says like this, imagine there's a person, like let's say in Poland, who's like on their deathbed, very sick, and the doctor says, you know something, there's something that can cure you, but this medicine exists in China? And this is Bnei Yisachar said China. And for, to get you this medicine, the ship is going to have to come in from China to Poland. I don't know how long this is going to take. You, I can't imagine you're going to survive. And there's a knock at the door, and the person says, a ship just came in from China with the medicine. <laughs> so, did a sea split? A sea didn't split. Did... In, in this version, as the Bnei Saskar is telling it, the, the, the ship came into the port. It didn't magically appear. So everything is according to nature in this story. But look at the miraculous guidance of nature by Hashem that he made all of these things together flow in such a way, this is a miracle. And if you study the Megillus Esther, you see that exactly when Esther became queen and how she became queen and all of the different dynamics and how Mordechai saved the life of Ahasuerus but he was never rewarded until it was found. All of these things come together exactly like the ship coming in from China at exactly the right moment. There's no splitting of the sea in Megillus Esther. But you see that it's a total miracle. Okay. Hanukkah you can't have one day's worth of oil last for eight days. It doesn't work. According to nature, it simply doesn't work. It's an open miracle. That is in the category of the splitting of the Red Sea. It's an open miracle. So now you see, ah, okay, so these are the two holidays that the sages picked out from reams of holidays, like I told you. Because these are the two holidays that the sages said are going to get you through exile. All right, which is understanding that there are hidden miracles and there are revealed miracles, but that everything is a miracle. Remember what the Ramban says. These are some of the strongest words I've ever seen in my entire life. The Ramban says, anyone who says that every single thing is not a miracle, meaning in life, has no portion in the Torah of Moshe. 
Can you imagine? He's saying that if you don't understand that every single thing, every single thing, no matter how mundane, no matter how mundane, if you don't understand that every single thing in life, in the world, is a miracle, you can't even begin to approach what the Torah is saying. Right? That's upsetting. It's upsetting? No, it's beautiful. It's awesome. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Because it allows you to go through life in a state of wonder. See, see, this is this is this is the Torah way to go through life. And again, to go through life in a in in, in a place of wonder while still having your feet on the ground and your heads in the cloud. See, the Torah discipline, the Torah way of going through life is not, it's, it's not, it's not kids play. A person has to be like a master. They have to, they have to really balance so many different contradictory things and to stay with clarity and focus. But if you can do it, even if you can begin to do it, it's awesome. Because you live, you literally live in a wonderland. Your life becomes a wonderland. It seems though that uh, when good things happen, it's attributed to being a miracle or uh, God enacting on it. And if it's bad things happen, it seems like it's blamed on you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, it, who says the good things are good and who says the bad things are bad? I mean, there are clear-cut bad things. You know, babies dying, rape, uh, you know things, I mean, that you can't justify at all, right? Like, how could you go to a woman that's raped and say, that was for anything that's good? Well, you, you don't yeah. say that. You don't I mean, it's cruel just to, to even you, say that you, to her. You, you, yeah. you, you don't say. You don't say. Yeah. You know? You know, it's, there's a, it says in Perke Avos that you don't console someone's, someone when their dead is lying in front of them. In other words, there's, there's wisdom to everything. There, that doesn't mean that we'll ever understand the reason in this lifetime for why something happens. But there are certainly moments where the, the wisdom is expressed by, by not saying anything. I mean, these you are know? extreme examples, but I mean, even something is, is like, you know, mundane is like not finding a parking spot or something. Uh, if, you know, you never find a parking spot, you're like, why... Are you forsaking me or something? But, like, that, you know, but that's a level. But sense? can I tell you something? No, yeah. but, but that, the sages talk about this. They say that this is a level. Like, and again, you see, a person has to build themselves to these, to these levels. In other words, it's like a ladder. And you can't take an advanced spiritual practice, which is what you just referred to, about really actually doing chuba when a parking space doesn't open up immediately for you. That's a very, very advanced level. You can't live like that until you've mastered 30 other things first, okay? But the sages absolutely do say that, for instance, if you reach your hand in your pocket, because you know you have a nickel in your pocket for the meter, and then you reach your hand, and then, but you reached your hand in the wrong pocket, you can do, you can say, have in mind, God, the tircha, the, 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 the distress of having reached into the wrong pocket when really my nickel was in the other pocket, let that atone for something in my life. This is a, a total Torah concept. And this would be the equivalent of the coin in the pocket reaching into the wrong pocket 
of not finding the, the parking space. Do you understand? But but a person a person has to build to that to that level because otherwise they'll just be crushed by you know the the everydayness of life. How how could it be God that it's a red light instead of a green light right now? I mean you can literally fry your brain doing chuva and totally corrupt and undermine your relationship with God. You see, getting back to your question, this is why I think Purim is associated with joy. Because the idea of Purim is, and this is the conclusion to this idea about hidden miracles, it means that God is there even when you think he absolutely isn't. That's the lesson of Purim. God is 100% there even when you think he isn't. Now, how can you survive in a situation where you're under a lot of stress and it doesn't feel like God is there, but you're being told God is there? How can you survive? There's only one way to survive. You have to be besimcha. You have to have joy. Because joy expands the mind. And when you have expanded consciousness, then you go, oh yeah, yeah, God is here. (laughs) Because otherwise, why am I alive? Why am I walking? Why am I working? Why are the walls still standing? Of course there's a guide here. Could it not be coincidence at all? This, I mean... Well, what aspect being coincidence? Well, I mean, you were, you were saying that the yeah. most clear-cut indication of, of God... Uh, uh, people say that, that the most clear-cut indication of, of God, you know, uh, uh, having some kind of hand in, in, in things, or, or the, the most clear-cut miracle, it was the, the parting of the Red Sea. But I think it's probably at Mount Sinai speaking to, to the people. I mean, that's, there's, no, yeah. there's no debate about that, right? Yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with yeah. you. But I wouldn't even put that in the category of a miracle. That's, that was just a happening. You know yeah, I mean? but uh, yeah. I mean, that's it's a miracle. No, I mean, it is people, a miracle. It is a miracle. You're right. I mean, yeah. you're, there were many miracles. You're yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, something like that is a clear-cut thing. I, I don't know why. For me, the thing that I wrestle with most is bad not being punished and good not being rewarded. This is the thing that bothers me a lot day to day, you know? Well, you know something? It's, it's funny because just on, I think it was on Shabbos yesterday, I was looking up a line in the Tehillim because it was being quoted somewhere else and I went to see it inside. And there was, I have this um, thing called, it's called the Tehillim Treasury. I recommend that you get it, especially if you're into learning. Art School puts it out. And basically, it's a line-by-line commentary or collection of commentary from different sages on almost every line of the Tehillim. And it's several volumes. It's very, very good because Tehillim is constantly being quoted in all sorts of things. So this gives you a chance to really learn the line and see different things. So I went into this one place, and it was, I think, number 36, I believe. And it was saying that David HaMelech was saying to Hashem, how is it that the re- that the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering? Please, God, change around the order of creation so that the wicked should should be punished immediately and the righteous should be rewarded immediately. So you should know that David and Melech, who's the soul of Mashiach, was basically getting into it with God that the whole sort of like order of the world has to be clarified because it's confusing everyone. It's messing people up. So what you're pointing to is, you know, one of the mysteries of life. But it's, it's, it's not, this is not a new problem. 
This is an age-old problem. And, you know, on the simplest level, I'm not trying to explain it away, but just so you should know, it's to preserve free choice. See, because look, if I were to give a dollar to someone on the street who needs it, and then my phone rings, oh, your stock just split again. And then I was to say, Lashon Hara, right? And, and then my phone rings, oh, um, your business just collapsed. <laughs> You know, like if there was if there was a one-to-one correspondence, and it was utterly clear, all free choice would be taken away. Not all, but uh, it would strengthen, you know, people's you know uh, uh, reaction to do something good. But I mean, I know people who, I mean, even if God spoke to them themselves, they wouldn't care. They would still, you know, do whatever they did. They just wouldn't care about you know whatever. Um, I don't know if that's true. I think that they. They would, they would, they would react. If if God spoke to a person directly, it would definitely have an impact. But, but the thing is, what's what's sort of interesting is, is that in Jewish history, you have two major stages. Um, you have the era of the prophets, and then you have the era of the sages. The era of the prophets are like, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Ezekiel, you know, just great, great, great prophets who said over the word of God to the people. And a lot of times the people were like, you know, thank you very much. <laughs> I've got my own ideas. Those are, you know. And then you have the ear of the sages, which is in the Gomorrah times. And it says that the, the, the spirituality of the Jewish people actually improved more during the ear of the sages than the year of the prophets. And that the that the sages were able to communicate things more through a person's rational mind than through the supernatural. And that that got into the people's bones more than just experiencing supernatural things. And you actually see it throughout Tanakh that there are miracles and then people do mass tshuva and then a short time later they go back to their old ways. So God, God, you know, life is pretty long for, for most of us, God willing. It's decades and decades and decades and decades and decades, God willing, right? God gives us a, a, a good amount of time to, to kind of learn lessons and then to make fixes in our, in our actual life. He's pretty patient with us. And, and, and I think one of the reasons is because the quick fix, which is, oh, if God would only speak to me, basically doesn't work. I don't know. You know, like, I went to Yeshiva, and, and there was a, a certain kind of people there that went there for like a week, and then they're like, oh, I feel some kind of, you know, magic thing, and then they, they went and jumped to be religious. I mean, I started studying, uh, like I told you, I started studying uh, Talmud, uh, sorry, Tanakh when I was like five, and by the time I was, you know, 20, I read all of Talmud. I mean, once, one time over, um, and and I still didn't find uh, uh, some kind of you know answer there. It, it's kind of annoying when, when somebody just jumps into it without knowing, that, without touching a, a like a kumash or something. You know, uh, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, everyone's got a different approach. Everyone's got a different path through life. You know? Yeah. So. You know, I mean, so, I, my point is that I still the, haven't found the truth. I mean, and, and like I, I yeah, I, but, but look, how old are you right now? Thirty. Okay, so you're thirty years old. 
it's a Sunday. Yeah. Could, you could be at a beach. Yeah. You could be at the movies, right? In here, instead, you're here talking, listening to me. What are you listening to me for? Well, I you mean, know, I, so I, so you know, I mean, obviously, obviously, there's something inside of you that is running after true. the Torah. Well, true you know? in general. I mean, okay. I'm not going to compare okay. it, so I read all the religious texts. So, okay, yeah. but still, you're here. You're not. You're not in a shrine someplace. You're here. Well, I have been in... Okay, you know, but yeah. right now you're here. So, so the idea of, oh, at a certain point I get an answer, it's, that's not so Jewish, you know? I mean, we, we spend our entire lives trying to go deeper. I mean, the best example for me is, what do we call our greatest masters? We call them Talmidi Chachamim, which means wise students. If, what? I, I studied my whole life, and you're calling me a student? Call me a master. No, we call them students. Why students? Why? Because even our greatest exemplars are people who understand that they still have something to learn. So this is very positive to, to ultimately feel as though you don't know. You know, I'll tell you something interesting. Rav Cook says that atheism is, 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 is a high level. <laughs> you would think atheism, someone who says, I know there's no God, that this is probably the lowest level. He says it's a high level, Rav Cook. Why? He says because if he says, I don't believe in any of the supernatural stuff, that means that this person, the myla, the positive thing, is he doesn't believe in anything false. Now he just has to learn the truth. <laughs> In other words, the whole table is all clean. It's all set for the truth. An atheist. So this is this is beautiful, you know? It, it would be beautiful <laughs> if the truth came to this person. All right, but, listen, you know, you're you're young still. Yeah, I mean, something else that bothers me is is that, that whenever I say something to a rabbi or someone religious, they always say things happen for a reason. But, I mean... The, the most upsetting thing about that is waiting for the reason to come, if it comes, you know, I mean, if it's, you know what I'm saying? You never know, you know the reason that it comes. Exactly. Listen, if I'll tell you something. If you're very lucky, <laughs> you do find the reason. I, I'll tell you something that someone said to me one time, one of my favorite things. He said, he said, at the end of 120, meaning at the end of our lives, we're going to get the answers to all of our questions. You hear that? Oh, let's speed up the process. Well, don't speak for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking my time. So, so he says. So this is our tradition. At the end of 120, we're going to get the answer to every single one of our questions, but we're not going to be able to do anything about it. Now we don't have the answer to all of our questions, but we can still do something about it. That's that's deep, that's deep because remember because remember, it's, it's the opposite of fruitless because remember this is olamasia, we inhabit right now the world of action, we don't inhabit the world of answers, we inhabit the world of action, see because let's say, after 120, you find out oh actually there was a great reason for that, and that makes perfect sense. 
oh, now I want to go back down and... I was so mad at God because I didn't know the answer to that, that I didn't keep Shabbos and I didn't put on tefillin. Now I want to keep Shabbos and put on tefillin. Uh, time's up, buddy. Yeah, but you what know, if you put on, keep Shabbos you know, and put on tefillin and you wasted your life doing that, not going out, not, uh, you know... Okay, uh, listen, I, 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 I didn't keep Shabbos a giant part of my life, yeah. okay? Can I tell you something? What, I have to see that movie on a Friday night instead of a Saturday night? That's the... I, it, Rogue One is... A, I'm going to die if I don't wait another 25 hours to see Rogue wow. One? Are you really serious? No, no, but, but... but. I mean, honestly, honestly, what what, what, what am I not doing? Friday night what am I and not Saturday doing? morning for yeah. somebody, at least especially who's young, are very important days of the week, you know? Uh, I mean, you, you, you lose a lot of... They uh, are, but I, I, I got I to gotta just be... I got to tell you something. Without, uh... Listen, I I have I have lived a lot of life, okay, and I can tell you that let's say I have to get high with my friends. They're having the best time getting high right now in the mountains. How many times can you get high in the mountains with your friends? You know what I'm saying? At a certain point, you're just getting high again. You're just shutting off your brain again. So you know, I mean, it's sort of like. At a certain point, you got to say, been there, done that. At a certain point, you got to say that if you're going to be real and you're going to be growth-oriented. Otherwise, we're just on these like treadmills. Like, how can I, you know, this what they call in this generation FOMO, fear of missing out. Oh my God, they got high one extra time than I do. Okay, so get high, get, get high twice on Sunday. You know what I'm saying? Really, honestly. It's it's not it's it's as 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 existentially like explosive or maddening as missing out on on some new non-kosher restaurant. I mean, how many times can you can you eat a trafe sandwich? Like at a certain point, you get the idea. Okay, that's what that tastes like. You know what? Jeff's tastes like this. Okay, maybe it's not that. It's not horrible. I actually even like it. At a certain point, you get it. You know what I mean? You just got to move on. Yeah. I don't know. There's, there's not. You're, you're take, the, talking about that, that thing that, that, that explosion in your mouth and whatever. I mean, it, to me, nothing tastes better than bacon. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. So imagine how much pleasure God's going to get when you give it up. He's going to say he didn't just like bacon. He loved bacon. bacon. He loved it, and he stopped doing it for me. And he's not even sure I'm there. <laughs> I love this guy. <laughs> But what if you give up bacon and God's not there? I mean, you know. Right. Just, like, so how many, that, that so, okay. okay, so you saved your body a lot of horrible, th- bacon is horrible for you. Yeah, but I mean, there's a lot of things that rabbis eat. I mean, how many rabbis know they're in shape? We're, we're talking about bacon and you right now. We're yeah. not talking about rabbis. I know, but how many rabbis know that are in shape? It's, we're it's not, not talking bacon. about rabbis now. We're yeah. talking about you and bacon. You know, so, so or, or like, you know, meat, you know cheeseburgers. What about the taste of Shabbos? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't I taste it at all. I think okay, myself. listen, that's a level. I mean, I'd like to, to, but to I, be able to taste Shabbos is already a level. Oh yeah, My that's a level. Is not that's a level. And he knows what Shabbos feels like. He says, when Shabbos comes in, you can feel it. Yeah. Okay. But he doesn't. It doesn't make him be religious. Not yet. Not yet. Not Definitely. Yet. But not he yet. recognizes that, that yeah. there's something changes. Like there's. Uh, uh, energy that comes up and yeah comes okay so that's, that's a that's, that's a very positive that's very positive so that's what's yeah, that takes yeah. about what about uh, that that kind of 
kind of thing. I, mean, I don't know. I, I've investigated it, I mean, you know, from back at least once, and I still haven't found, you know, Okay. Okay. That feeling, it. I don't know. Listen, like I say, the fact that you're here is meaningful. That means that you have some level of investment. Even if your mind doesn't, your soul is directing your feet. So, you know. Or I'm just crazy and wasting my time. Well, you know, you're, if you are, you're a member of a very distinguished club who's doing the same. <laughs> you know? Because, I mean, who's better than the Jewish people? I mean, you look at the Jewish people throughout history. Who, who would you rather sign your name on, on a list with? When you study who the sages were, who the tzaddikim are, what we've gone through, what we've accomplished, what we've contributed to this world, what, what club would you rather be in? I mean, I mean, you're in good company, even in the, even in your worst case scenario, you're 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 in the right spot. I think these are the stages yeah. that everybody who starts the path goes through. Like I remember, like I wanted to go shopping on Saturday. Like, oh, the sale is on Saturday. If I don't go, it's like I'm gonna miss it. Yeah, that's that's a thing that you miss. It's just the shift of uh, your perception of... But then you don't get the sale. No, you get it. If you, It's like, it's a test of emuna. You get it on another day. I think that's a hard. It's a... <laughs> it's a I don't know. If you start noticing Hashem... You're living on a different reality. You're going to go, you're going to shift. Like, the day we came back from JLI, I was driving and you already came back and you gave your morning lecture. And I was driving back, you said Hashem is everywhere. Every, like, every instance, every second he said Hashem is with us. And then at that very moment, I looked at my odometer, it said 26, 26, <laughs> zero. It's like, why did I even look at my odometer at that second? When you start yeah. noticing these little things are gonna yeah. show up in your life and but it's like sporadic. It's not yeah. gonna be there. You're not gonna get high in one second, but it's gonna happen even you start <coughs> focusing your yeah. because the sale thing is that you're missing the sale, but if it's the item you want or if it's you want to bring it into your life, and you can bring it into your life on a miracle level. I mean, if you're connecting to Hashem, it can come to your life in any way. It's not a sale you're dependent on. It's the idea that you're bringing it into your life. Right. Or sometimes you, you, you can end up... Okay, so then... You save you, you sa you, you'll you save... You'll get a savings in a different area. God does it. God is a master accountant, so you'll you know, or you'll get an extra job or gig in, in some other place. And... It may even be more than you would have saved on the item at the sale. God has many, many ways of, of bringing blessing. He does. He does. But, but what you're saying is also true. And I, I want to validate that. There, is, there are aspects where you say, wow, I have to give that up. And I don't want to give that up. And I really like that. And it's really hard to give that up. And maybe I don't really have to give that up because this is all made up. And then, you know, then you wonder. But the thing is, is that if you really honestly investigate the world, there is a lot of order to the world. And there's way more order to the world than there is confusion to the world. And I'm talking about on the cosmic sense right now. 
um, the question of why the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer is built into the world in order to maintain free choice. And this is a question that will never go away until Mashiach comes. It will never go away. You just have to reconcile yourself to that. But if you're able to look beyond that, and you see the billions, the hundreds of billions, maybe even trillions of heavenly bodies, all the way down to the subatomic particles, to the DNA in your body, to just how everything is organized, you see a level of precision that's beyond. Nothing explains it, and I don't, you can jump up and down and do somersaults yelling Darwin till you're blue in the face. You can't, you can't explain to me the mass precision in the universe. You can't. You can't. You can't intellectually tell me that there isn't a divine order to it. You can't. But you can't. there is some imperfections. Like the human eye is pretty imperfect. I mean, people like to use the human eye as a, as a, as a example. I'm talking way beyond. I'm talking way beyond that. I'm talking about the cosmos down to the subatomic level. I'm talking way beyond the human eye. Way beyond. I'm saying if you open up your mind and you really think expansively, you'll see that God is actually obvious. It, it, it takes a while to get there, but a person can get to the place where it's obvious that there's God. And then you say, then you have a choice. Okay, well, do I want to live in harmony with that my own way? Do I want to live in harmony with that in the way that it's been handed down through the generations from, from God? Do I want to just try to do my best and make a mixture of it? All these things become your personal responsibility. And at the end of 120, we stand before the heavenly court. This is our tradition. And then God says, okay, he looks, he looks it over. And there's no, there's no escape from God. There's no escape from God. And so, see, we live forever. And so our lifetime in this world is like this. Even if it seems long, it's this. Because our souls last beyond us. So if a person is going to be, like, I think, really logical and intelligent, they should... Like, look at it like, well, am I living my life in a way that sets me up for eternity? I mean, the thing you know? for me is that, that it's usually the reverse of that that happens to me. Like, when I try to do religious things, just bad things happen. But when I'm not doing those things, it seems that things work out better. And that that's confusing to me. It seems like there's something something controlling that, whether it's, uh, you know, a good force or a malevolent force. Uh, well, I would ask you, how are you doing good things? Like, I mean, what, what, give me an example of trying to do a good thing and something bad happening. Okay, like, I used to work with celebrities and stuff before, and things, I mean, things seemed good at that time. Then I, I tried, you know, going to yeshiva and, and stuff. I mean, things were going well for me as something I can use for my resume, right? Uh, but then I started being religious and, and, and cut that out and things just died out. Then I stopped being religious and I, I, I got, um, you know, uh, I was working for, for a best-selling author. I got letter of recommendation and stuff doing that. Then I started being religious again, thinking that might help things 
and um, nothing happened. Then, then I, I stopped being religious. I got, um, I was in the newspaper. Uh, uh, I'm going back to, to today. But what is when you say uh, being religious? What is that? What's the definition of being religious? Keeping Shabbat. Uh, but what, do, what does that mean? Kosher, what does that mean? Keeping Shabbat. Like sitting at home by myself. That's uh, not with the keeping Shabbat. Uh, That's not keeping Shabbat. What, what's keeping Shabbat? Keeping Shabbat is you're going to shul. Oh yeah, yeah, going to shul. You're, yeah, you're interacting but with I'm people. I'm going home by myself with the lights off. That's that's where, where my day ends okay. up. Okay. Okay. I mean, yeah. you, you know, you have. I, mean, a, I can't use my computer. I can't go to meetings. I can't do any of that stuff. Right. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. Um, but I mean, there, there's, there. Shabbat is not like a time-space prison cell. That's what it seems to me. I mean, I don't well, know. okay, but now we're getting into it. Does it, I mean, does so it feel like that to you in the beginning or at least? I mean, I don't know. There were, yeah, there were times where it was sort of like, wow, I mean, there's, it's still Shabbos? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, you know, like I, like I, like I, I remember there was someone who I'm very, very close with, and he's actually now a rabbi, believe it or not, but he wasn't even observant at this point, and we kept uh, his, his first Shabbos together, and it was the longest Shabbos of the year. It was in August, so it was like, oh my goodness, this thing went like till 9 p.m., and then the funniest thing, he was dying. He was dying, like, during Shabbos, like, I, I, I can't do this any longer, and then we finish Mariv, and it's like, ah, and then someone says, Kiddush Levana, <laughs> and then he had, like, this whole other service. After the longest Shabbos of the year, I'll never forget it. It was like, if it wasn't sad, it would have been like the funniest thing in the world, you know? I think it was the funniest thing in the world at the time, because he was so over the top before that, like, I gotta get out of here. Anyway, it's a certain rhythm. You know, when you listen to, like, really good music, like, I remember, like, when the Talking Heads, you know, back in the day would come out with a new album, and they were doing, like, brand new music, like, and it would get these like stellar reviews, I'd have to l listen to it like two or three times, maybe four times, and then I'd be like, this is fantastic. But the, all the rhythms were so unusual and new to me that I didn't know where they were going, and I couldn't appreciate them at all. But once I got used to them, I'm like, yeah, this is fantastic. Shabbos is the same way. Shabbos is a unique rhythm. And until you get used to what that rhythm is, then it's a very, you're just butting your head up against it. And sitting alone in the dark is definitely not being in harmony no, with I'm the saying, rhythm. But at the end of the day, I end up, I can't use my computer, I can't, you know, um, not use the computer, like, I need to right. do my stuff, you know. But, like, but you there's know. also, but there's also the idea of you don't just go from like zero to 60 in like a second. Like you say, okay, I'm going to start to try to keep Shabbos. Okay, so it's very hard for me not to use my computer. So I'm going to start using, I'm going to ease into it. I'm going to use my computer, like maybe I won't use it Friday night, but I'll use it during the day on Shabbos. Or, you know, maybe I'll check my messages once or twice during the day, but I'm not going to have the phone uh, in my pocket the whole time. Yeah, so that's what I'm, I'm doing now. But I just feel to myself, I just feel like I'm fooling myself at that point, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'll go to synagogue and then I'll go out to the club after or something because, I mean, I find that I make more connections in a club than I do in a synagogue with regards to, to what I'm doing, you know? Well, uh, I mean, if you're only going to shul to make business connections... No, then, no, no, I I'm, mean, saying, I'm know, saying that, that um, just... Like I said, on, on Friday and Saturday are the best times to, to meet people, you know? People don't go out on Tuesday. Right, you know? but now so Shabbos, I, Shabbos to, ends early right now. What? You can, you can, the, no. I'm saying Shabbos I'm not going to meet the people I need to meet in shul 
You know what I'm saying? I, I understand what you're saying, but what I'm telling you is that during a large part of the year, at least half the year, I mean, the clubs that you're talking about don't get going until 11 p.m. or 12 p.m. anyway. And sure. Shabbos is long over by then, even in the summer. That's Saturday night. Yeah, but also, you know, like, so, so Saturday morning, there's nothing to do with this. This whole area is dead. And so, I mean, in order to get to, you know, West Hollywood or Beverly Hills or something, I still have to, you know, bus it or Uber or whatever it is. So, okay, so. Th there's also that uh, aspect, too. Okay, so you know in the beginning, in the beginning, you can take a car or whatever it is. And at a certain yeah, point, you, at, at, a cer at a certain point, you just have to say to yourself, okay, look, it, do I want to try to find a place in the neighborhood because now I can walk and that's going to make my life easier. This feels good. I want to do this. But why do I have to make myself crazy and take an Uber or a bus every single time? Let me find an apartment that's that's within walking distance. Yeah. You know, so but 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 you can do that. You can make that adjustment. You know? So and and then in terms of going out Saturday night, you know? So, you know, I don't know that you God just asks us to put in a certain amount of what we call hishtadlis. That means human effort. And then God says, then I'll take it from there. But I want to see that you're That's working. The waiting, yeah. He says, I want to see that you're working. So, so to be networking Friday night and Saturday night, you don't have to be networking Friday night and Saturday night. You can be networking Saturday night. And Friday night is, is, is for Shabbos. Well, I mean, like, I'm and, on a time the, limit while I'm here. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can only leave. But how many people? Months. How many people do you need to meet? One person. Though, yeah, yeah. That's, okay. Yeah. So, okay. So, how well, long does it take to meet one person? If God wants you to meet that person, a second. So, how much time do you have? All the time in the world. You know, but you, 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 when you, you have to have like. A guide in terms of how you're taking on your observance, because I feel like you're taking on your observance in sort of this this very abrupt way that is not um, calming for your soul. It's like you're you're like shocking your soul, and it's not. And and I I, I feel like that um, that it's like almost like the Yitzhahara. It's like almost like the dark side telling you now you got to do more, and then. You do more in a way that says, I'm absolutely not doing that anymore. So it's just getting you to do more in a way to turn you off further. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So that's why you have to do it in a, like a very ordered you know, way. You have to talk to someone about that. You know? We can talk another time, if you like, you know, about just practical steps in terms of easing into it. You know? um,